Welcome to another episode of Murder and Mixology. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Murder in Mixology. Uh, this is going to be our third episode in our series on the still unsolved murders of Chicago's Barbara and Patricia Grimes. Um, we usually start off our show with uh, with uh, the drink of the episode, uh, but before we get into that, I wanted to uh, do a quick shout out, have a little editorial. Uh, work here. I uh, want to do a shout out to Chris Lynch uh, with the Windy City Historians. Uh, if you remember on our last episode, I'd mentioned John Drury, who had uh, written the book Dining in Chicago in 1930. Well, I had inadvertently thought it was the same John Drury who was the anchor on ABC7 uh, for so many years. And um, and I should have I should have really thought about it uh, since the book was written in 1930. Um, so if it was John Drury, the anchorman, he would have written the book when he was three years old. So that really doesn't work, uh, very well. Uh, but that's what the historians do is they, um, they reach out and correct each other. And that way, uh, false information doesn't get uh, spread, which I don't want to be responsible for doing. So thanks to Chris, uh, actually John Drury, the writer, uh, who worked for the Daily News, wrote the book Dining in Chicago. Uh, he was born in 1899 and died in 1972. Uh, John Drury, the anchorman, was born in 1927 and died in 2007 uh, after a five-year battle with ALS. Um, I'm not sure if there's any relation. I did some quick uh, looking. It doesn't appear to be one, at least not a close relation. Um, I was thinking maybe it was father, but John Drury was born in Peoria. And, uh, and John Drury uh, was born in Chicago and lived there uh, pretty much his entire life. So uh, may have been cousins, who knows. Uh, but anyway, not the same John Drury. Uh, also, uh, something different in this episode is I will be um, going solo today. Uh, my, co-host, my co-host could not be with us uh, due to technical difficulties beyond our control. Uh, so this will be a solo episode of Murder and Mixology. Um, so with that being said, uh, let's start off with, uh, this episode's drink. So, um, I chose this drink for a number of reasons, uh, least of which, uh, March is women's history month, as most of you are probably aware. And, um, so I wanted to choose a drink that, um, was named after a, uh, woman in Chicago who had a significant impact. And, um, and I chose Bertha, the Bertha. So, uh, Bertha referring to Bertha Henri Palmer, uh, who was the, uh, well, she was a lot more than just the wife of Powder Palmer. Um, but, uh, for most of you are aware that, uh, are familiar with the name Palmer, uh, most likely, uh, when you think of the Palmer House uh, Hotel in Chicago, that's what you're uh, you're thinking of. And Potter Palmer was the founder of that hotel. Um, now, Potter Palmer was, of course, the founder of the hotel, and he was also a co-founder of the legendary Marshall Field and Company. Uh, he also built and uh, most of the stores on uh, built and, and leased most of the stores on on State Street, and pretty much almost single-handedly moved or reoriented uh, Chicago's downtown area from the east-west street of Lake Street to uh, what now is State Street. So uh, he was uh, pretty much a self-made man came from New York, uh, started a dry goods store. And, um, and Bertha, 
uh, no slouch in her own rights, uh, was born into a, a pretty wealthy family. Her father was a successful business uh, businessman. And uh, they moved, the Andres, uh, Andres moved to Chicago when she was six years old. And she met uh, Potter when uh, she was 13 years old. And they were going to visit her family, was going to the dry goods store that Potter Palmer um had started. Um, now I have to, um, these next two stories, I have to credit, uh, Ken Price, uh, who is the Palmer house historian. And he was, uh, very kind to meet with me one day and go over some of the history of the Palmer house. And, uh, he told me uh, a couple of really cool stories that were passed down to him, uh, by members of the Palmer family. And, um, one of the stories is that after, um, uh, Bertha had, had visited the dry goods store, I guess Palmer had, uh, had seen her and thought she was very beautiful. Of course, he was 36 at the time um, and decided that he was going to go to her father's house, knock on the door. And when her father answered, he said, my name is Potter Palmer and I'm going to marry your daughter, Bertha. Um, now, of course, the father being um, not too happy with a 36-year-old uh, man uh, calling on his 13-year-old daughter uh, promptly threw him off the property. So, uh, which started an eight-year crusade on Potter Palmer's part to uh, attempt to court um, Bertha. And uh, she pretty much, um, you know, she agreed to date him, but she pretty much... Uh, uh, did not go along with his advances. He asked her to marry her a couple of times, or marry him a couple of times, and uh, was unsuccessful uh, until finally. Uh, and again, I, I credit Ken Price to the story. Uh, she had said, "Okay, well, I'll, I'll marry you if you build me a hotel." And so what he did is he set out to uh, build the first Palmer House, and uh, it was one of the largest buildings of the time. Um, I believe it was eight stories tall. And uh, two weeks uh, before the grand opening, or if, um, uh, at least that's what it was told to me on the website, it said 13 days after the grand opening, uh, the uh, Palmer House burned in the Chicago fire. Um, and then Potter, after and not only his his uh, hotel, but all the properties that he owned burned. So pretty much the Chicago fire wiped him out. And uh, he was sitting there and looked at Bertha and said, uh, well, I guess you're not going to marry me now. And she said, uh, no, wait a second, you still owe me a hotel. Um, so that was the story. I thought it was really cool. Um, but he did uh, head back to New York, where he was from, and managed to get a $1.7 million loan uh, on his name alone. So he had no collateral. Uh, came back, rebuilt the Palmer House, uh, paid back all of his debts. And uh, when he passed away, he left a uh, about an $8 million uh, fortune for Bertha. Uh, now, Bertha... Uh, was also a shrewd businesswoman, and, and she loved the finer things in life. She traveled frequently to Europe and quickly befriended European royalty. Uh, she loved all the pomp and pageantry of her royal friends, and many times showed them up with her gowns and stunning jewelry. She became a huge fan of French Impressionist art, which was quite uh, didn't, wasn't really taking off in the U.S. at the time. Uh, but she amassed a, a huge personal collection, including uh, 29 Monets and 11 Renoirs, uh, which upon her death were donated to the Chicago Art Institute. And I believe they still have them. I think it makes up the, uh, the bulk of their Impressionist art um, exhibit. Uh, but the thing that um, really stands out for me, because it's also one of my favorite topics in Chicago history, is that she became, in 1893, she became the president of the Board of Lady Managers of the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Um, 
So the, the World's Columbian Exposition was the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. Uh, many people are aware of it because of Eric Larson's book, uh, Devil in the White City. Um, uh, it is the third star in the Chicago flag. It was actually the second star when the flag was first introduced in 1917. Um, it only had two stars, and the Columbian Exposition was one of them. So it was, uh, you know, according to Chicago, it was, a, it was a pretty important part of Chicago history. Well, she became the president of the Board of Lady Managers. Uh, this was a first for the fair. There was never a Board of Lady Managers for any World's Fair prior to that. Uh, she was also in charge of uh, the Women's Building. So that was another first. Uh, it was the first time that women had a separate building uh, to be able to show off um, everything that women in the world were doing. Uh, a lot of people uh, didn't know uh, that women were involved in the arts and writing and architecture and, and you name it, science. Um, so this is a way of uh, for women to show off to the world uh, their accomplishments. Now, initially, Bertha thought that it was going to be hard um, to fill this building. It was a huge building. Like most of the buildings of the fair, it was designed by a, a woman, Sophia Hayden. Um, and initially, she thought that they were going to have a hard time filling up this um filling up this building. But uh, after she reached out to her friends in Europe um, and kind of spread the world word about the women's building, uh, they actually had to turn uh, exhibits away. It filled up really quickly. Um, so it was a great, uh, it was a great uh, thing altogether. Uh, another first for the fair. Uh, one of the other uh, big things about the Chicago Fair that Bertha is known for is um, the brownie. So she is credited, or, or at least the pastry chef at the Palmer House is credited with coming up with the first brownie. And the story goes that she was having a picnic uh, for the Board of Lady Managers at the World's Fair. And she had asked the uh, pastry chef of the Palmer House if um, he could come up, since they weren't going to be using utensils, she wanted him to come up with um, a chocolate cake that you could eat with your hands. Uh, so that's what he did. And uh, it turned out to be, uh, it, it wasn't called the brownie right away. I think that term wasn't coined until about 1898. Um, but the actual physical brownie was created for the World's Fair by uh, Bertha Palmer and the uh, pastry chef at the, at the Palmer House. And if you go to the website, you can get the uh, recipe, the original recipe for the brownie. I have made, or I should say my wife has made them. Um, if you're on a diet, I, I would suggest you not do it. It involves a lot of sugar and a lot of butter and and they're really, really good. Um, but I will put the link on the Murder and Mixology website to uh, that recipe page. Um, now, uh, Potter Palmer, her husband died in 1902, uh, left his, uh, left his wife an estate worth about $8 million. Um, Bertha was no slouch when it came to business. Um, before she died, she had taken that 8 million and pretty much doubled it, uh, through a lot of really good real estate deals. Uh, she was a real estate pioneer. Uh, in 1910, she purchased over 80,000 acres of land in an area in and around Sarasota, Florida, and promoted the area as a winter haven for her rich and famous friends. Um, so I guess you can kind of credit her with uh, Florida being kind of the uh, the winter haven for uh, the rich and famous. Um, she also helped encourage the Florida ranching, citrus, dairy, and farming industries. Uh, many of the areas, uh, roadways and such in the area, still bear the Palmer and Onroyne names. Uh, Bertha never did remarry, although... It has been retold many times that when, when Potter was, was putting together his will, uh, close to when he died, um, 
uh, people questioned why Potter was going to give all that money, money to his wife because, you know, she was still young and she could have remarried. And he said, well, if she does remarry, he's going to need the money is uh, what he supposedly had said. Um, I've not found any citations on that. However, that story seems to be told over and over again. Uh, makes for a good story anyway. Um, uh, but she never did remarry, and she died on May 5th, 1918 at her winter residence and is buried alongside her husband at Chicago's Graceland Cemetery. So that's a little background on Bertha Palmer. Now, the drink itself, so this is what we're going to get into now. So the drink itself, I believe it was created by the Palmer House, at least that's where I had it originally uh, and read about it. Um, so the way you're going to make this is you're going to grab your shaker and you're going to fill it with ice. And you're going to pour in two ounces of vodka. Um, the, uh, the Palmer House website says Grey Goose Vodka. Um, and I kind of envision this being the business side of, of uh, Bertha. I'm making this up, by the way. Uh, this isn't official on their site. It's just kind of what I kind of read into the drink. So two ounces of vodka. The recipe is, is right, but the, the, the interpretation is, is mine. Um, two ounces of vodka. Um, I, I, I assume for the business side of, of, uh, Bertha, one ounce of Contro, uh, which, uh, calls back to her French heritage, Contro being a, a liqueur, uh, made out of orange rind, uh, from France. Um, it is uh, a little expensive. It's about $40 a bottle, but you can also substitute triple sec if you need to. Um, that won't be the official Bertha though. Um, but it'll be close, uh, and a little bit sweeter, uh, than the original. Um, I chose one ounce of pomegranate juice. It does call for pomegranate juice. And I look at this as being, um, you know, Bertha was forever youthful and pomegranate juice. Uh, the pomegranate fruit has the most antioxidants of, of any fruit, uh, uh, most anti-aging antioxidants. Uh, and then also one teaspoon or five dashes, or uh, if you did what I did, just take uh, half of a lemon and squeeze it by hand into the glass. And it's just about the, the same amount. I like the fresh lemon. And I think of this as being just a little bit of sour if you happen to get on Bertha's bad side. So anyway, you throw everything into the shaker. Um, I'm making it now as, as we're talking. Throw everything in the shaker. You know, give it a couple good shakes. Um, and then pour through the strainer uh, or on your shaker uh, can, depending on how you made it, uh, into a glass. And you can garnish it with uh, a lemon wedge. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and try it real quick, even though I've kind of cheated because I've had it before, but uh, not the one I've made. Hmm. Yeah, it's got a little bit of a punch, a um, little bit of a punch um, uh, and a little bit on the sweet side. So, uh, but uh, it's good. It's good. It's enjoyable. It's a, it's a good cocktail with uh, some really cool history. Um, so with that under our belt, I'm going to enjoy the cocktails. We, we talk about our next episode getting back to the uh, still unsolved murder of Chicago's Barbara and Trisha Grime, uh, Patricia Grimes. And um, our last episode, we ended with uh, Benny Bedwell uh, being the only person that was arrested for the case, uh, being freed, and pretty much nobody uh, has been arrested since. Um, uh, the next, uh, this uh, next story is gonna gonna pretty much pick up where I had gotten involved as a researcher uh, into the case, and uh, with that, I'm just going to. Uh, let you listen to that story and we'll talk about it a little bit more after. 
After I left my career in law enforcement, I spent more time on my second love, which was writing and historical research. In 2010, I contacted a publisher about an idea I had for a book. They actually liked the idea, and one of the chapters in the book was about the murder of the Grimes girls. Prior to this point, I had known about the case like most people who had grown up in the Chicago area and from others in law enforcement, but I had never actually spent time researching the case. After a couple months of research and writing, I decided to go down a rabbit hole by researching other child murders of the time and came across the murder of Bonnie Lee Scott, 15, of Addison, Illinois. The suspect, who eventually was sentenced to 99 years, was a 20-year-old by the name of Charles Leroy Milquist. As I read about the case, the hairs stood up on the back of my neck. It was the same feeling I had when I was a cop and pieces of a case started to come together. The details of the case were eerily similar to those of the Grimes case. It was September of 1958, the year after the girls' bodies were discovered. Charles Leroy Milquist was an unemployed mason or construction worker, according to newspaper accounts. After making it through his sophomore year at York Community High School in Elmhurst, Illinois, he had a short stint as a paratrooper with the U.S. Army. Melquist lived with his parents, Elmer and Hazel Melquist, at 655 Yale Street in Villa Park, Illinois. Melquist fancied himself a ladies' man and drove a 1957 white and turquoise convertible. He loved going to carnivals and movies, and some of his male acquaintances referred to him as a fixer. He met Bonnie at a carnival in the summer of 1958. He befriended her and they started dating, although he denied any sexual interest in her. He liked to think of himself as her big brother. Bonnie was a somewhat troubled 15-year-old. Her father, Guy Scott, 39, a professional swimmer, had divorced her mother, Marilyn, 38, who had been in a state mental hospital for over seven years. She lived at 112 Normandy in Addison, Illinois, with her grandmother, Doris Hitchens, who was her legal guardian. Her aunt and uncle, Jean and Robert Swallow, were also helping to raise her. She had a wild side to her and once had been absent for 20 days straight from York Community High School where she was a sophomore. Many times she would not get home until 2 or 3 a.m. On September 22nd, Bonnie did not come home. She had been out all night before this, but this time seemed different to her grandmother. Mrs. Hitchens called Addison Police Chief Nels Anderson. The Schwallows didn't know whether to be worried or relieved that Bonnie had left. They thought that Bonnie could be a bad influence on their daughter, Sue, who was also 15. The night of the 22nd, Bonnie had walked out of the house at 7 p.m. with $2.50 in her pocket. She said that she was going to buy a sleeveless blouse at an Addison surplus store and never came back. Chief Anderson assigned Detective William Craig and Juvenile Specialist William Cavaney to the Scott case. They circulated a description of Bonnie and checked through neighboring forest preserves for the missing girl. Meanwhile, Chuck Milquist was giving Bonnie's grandmother encouragement and even volunteered to drive her around to search for Bonnie and to talk to her friends. Milquist later boasted that directly under the front passenger seat, directly under where Bonnie's grandmother was sitting, was where Milquist had stuffed Bonnie's clothes. Melquist told Mrs. Hitchens that Bonnie had called him about 8.15 p.m., which would have been about an hour after she left home. 
Melquist said that Bonnie was at the 4Ds, which was a hamburger joint, which was a hangout for the young kids. He said that Bonnie was having some problems with the guy she was with and needed her big brother to come and get her. Melquist supposedly told her that she would just have to grow up and start getting herself out of these situations, and then Bonnie had hung up on him. He said that about 11 p.m. that night, he got a call from a stranger. It was a male voice who said that he was calling for Bonnie. He said that he and Bonnie had gotten into an argument, and then she got out of his car at Mannheim Road, Route 45, and U.S. Route 66, which is now Juliet Road, and that if he wanted to pick her up from there, Bonnie would be waiting for him. Melquist said, so then I drove out there. And he went on and said, I couldn't find her, I just assumed she'd hitched a ride home. Melquist repeated the same story to the Addison Police Department. Melquist said that he would help in any way that he could and expected any day now to get hired by the DuPage County Sheriff's Office. On Saturday, November 15, 1958, Cub Scouts from Cicero, Illinois, led by Edward Zadis, were doing a nature walk in the Palos Hills Forest Preserve at Route 45 and 95th Street. Randall Palchik, 13, made a gruesome discovery. Just past a shoulder of the road in a gully on the west side of Route 45, a short distance south of 95th Street, was a badly decomposed naked female body. It had three deep slashes extending downward from the left side of the chest. It was unknown if these wounds had caused her death. The head of the body was found about 20 feet away and appeared to have been severed by a very sharp instrument. The decomposition of the body led investigators to believe she had been dead for about a month and the falling leaves had exposed the body to view through the bare branches of the trees. Lieutenant James McMahon of the Chicago Homicide Squad said that the woman appeared to have weighed about 120 pounds, had reddish-brown hair, and was about 5 feet 5 inches tall. Her fingernails were covered with a pearl or silver-colored nail polish. Sheriff Lohman rushed Chief Deputy Thomas Smith to the scene, which was only three miles from where the Grimes girls had been discovered 22 months earlier. The next day, an article was published in the paper about the body of a girl being found, and the police theorized that the body was that of a young newspaper reporter named Molly Zelko from Joliet, Illinois. Mrs. Zelko disappeared more than 13 months earlier, and her dental records were scheduled to be compared to the newly discovered body. Interestingly, the day the story of the unidentified body being found hit the papers, Mrs. Loretta Grimes received a telephone call. The male voice on the phone said, I got away with another one. They're not going to be able to pin this one on Benny Bedwell or Barry Cook. Then he laughed and hung up the phone. Loretta Grimes was shocked and contacted the local paper. She recognized the voice as the same voice that called her after her girls' bodies were found. Loretta said that in May of 1957, she received a call from a male voice who said, I'm the one that undressed your girls. I know something about your girls that nobody else knows. The little one crossed her toes when she was nervous. Then the caller laughed and hung up the phone. Loretta Grimes was 100% positive that the same person was responsible for both phone calls. 
She recognized the voice and tone of the voice as well as the way the person laughed both times before hanging up the phone. Immediately, I thought to myself, who would be scanning the papers for unidentified bodies being found and who would think immediately to call Mrs. Grimes and claim to have gotten away with another one, especially if the person read in the paper that the police thought it to be the body of of a reporter and not that of Bonnie Lee Scott. Obviously, whoever killed Scott and saw that the police were unsure which body they had would feel emboldened. In addition, this person, who Mrs. Grimes identified as the same person to have claimed to have undressed her girls and had that personal information that was never disclosed publicly, would probably have had something to do with the death of her girls. This fact alone would point to Charles Melquist, but it also raises many questions. Dr. Victor Levine of the Cook County Coroner's Office conducted the post-mortem examination. At first he thought that the body could be that of a woman about 20 years old, but soon decided that she was much younger. He said he couldn't determine a cause of death, but that the murder probably happened about six weeks ago. When Bonnie's grandmother heard of the discovery of the body, she asked Chief Anderson if it could be her Bonnie. The chief arranged the family dentist, Dr. P.D. Grimes, to view the body. The dental records were conclusive. Bonnie Lee Scott was murdered. In a second autopsy, a heart-shaped locket, which was positively identified as Bonnie's, was found in her lower colon. DuPage County law enforcement shifted their investigations into high gear. They combed local forest reserves looking for her clothes, a light blue sweater, a cocoa brown cotton shirt, a black zipper front jacket, black shoes, scarf, and purse. Eight scuba divers searched the Belly Deep Slough to search for her clothes and the possible murder weapon, and neither were found. Salespeople at the surplus store where Bonnie said she was going that night recalled her trying on sleeveless shirts, but she didn't buy anything. At the 4D's restaurant, a waitress named Florence Delter, 27, remembered Bonnie had fries and a Coke and left the place with four boys. The four boys were identified and taken to the Addison Police Station. They admitted being with Bonnie at the restaurant and then going into the parking lot to take turns dancing with her to the tunes on their car radio. They asked if she wanted to go for a ride and she refused. They said that they left her in the parking lot of the restaurant. They all took polygraph examinations and they all passed. The police asked Melquist to come in again for questioning. He told him the same story he had told him before. They said that he could go home, but asked him to come in again in the morning for some more questions. His father, Elmer, a utility company employee, accompanied him to the Edison PD. Chief Anderson felt as though Melquist was lying and confronted him. Melquist suggested that they put him on a lie detector test. As a result, Melquist was given a polygraph at the Edison Village Hall on a portable machine operated by George Taney. Deputy Sheriff Smith of Cook County was present at the test. Did you receive a phone call from Bonnie or from a man calling for her on September 22nd? Yes, Melquist answered, and the needle began to move. What was the extent of your relationship with her on dates? Melquist answered firmly that he only had a brother interest in Bonnie. Deputy Sheriff Smith told Melquist he only answered 10 of the 18 questions truthfully and asked Melquist if he would be willing to have a more definitive test done by John E. Reed in Chicago. Melquist was all for the idea, so on November 17th he visited the now famous offices of former Chicago policeman turned professional interviewer and polygraphist. 
Reed himself administered the test. After a short period interviewing Melquist, he came out of the room and told waiting police officers, that boy is lying. After five hours, Melquist gave two confessions. One was to John Reed in his office, and one was to First Assistant State's Attorney Frank Furlick. Melquist stated that on September 22nd, Bonnie called him and he picked her up on the street. They then drove back to his house in Villa Park, and while in the vehicle, they started to play around with some pillows that he had taken from his parents' living room couch, and things had gotten a little too rough. He said he must have held the pillow over Bonnie's face a little too long, and she stopped breathing. He then drove the body to 95th and Route 45 and dragged it into the bushes just over the guardrail and out of sight. He then drove home with Bonnie's clothes stuffed under his front seat of his car. He went to sleep that night, and when he woke up, he had to ask himself, did I actually kill Bonnie last night, or did I just dream it? He had to go back to the scene to confirm what he may have done. When he arrived, he brought a shovel just in case it was true so that he could bury the body. However, once he saw the body, instead of burying it, he had an overwhelming urge to mutilate it. He took out a hunting knife of his and stabbed the torso of the body a couple of times and then cut Bonnie's head off and threw it a little further back in the bushes. He said that he heard what he thought were footsteps which spooked him and he quickly got back into his car, drove away and tossed the knife out of the window. He also stated that he burned the clothes in a small fire but couldn't point investigators to exactly where the site of the fire actually was. There is so much more to the Melquist story which we discovered later in our continuing research, but I felt that with the information I had, I had a responsibility to share it with law enforcement. This Melquist name was not one that I had come across with simple research into the case. Why didn't this case get much press and why in a time when everyone and anyone who could possibly be a suspect in the Grimes case was brought in for questioning, why wasn't Melquist? I did know that Melquist was ultimately convicted of the murder of Bonnie Lee Scott and was sentenced to 99 years. I was curious where he was locked up and even if he was still alive. I was not prepared for what I discovered. While Melquist was sentenced to 99 years, he was out in roughly 8 years, got married, and had children of his own. He was also still alive and living in Naperville, Illinois. I wasn't sure who was officially handling the Grimes case, or really if anyone still was, so I decided to call the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. The woman who answered told me I could leave a message, which I did. To be honest, I did feel a little strange about giving the information to investigators. I'm sure they had this already and had already worked the angle, but still a voice inside me said I should leave the message, so I did. Hi, my name is Ray Johnson. I'm a former cop who might have some information that could help in an old unsolved murder. I left my phone number as well, but that was it. Two days later, an investigator with the Cook County State's Attorney's Cold Case Unit called me back. He said that he had an idea which case I was talking about. I told him that I didn't leave any info on what case I was talking about. He asked, is it the Grimes case? I was like, what? How did you know that? He just laughed and said it must have been the tone of my voice. He asked me if I would like to come down to the Criminal Courts Building at 26th in California and sit down with him and a representative of the Chicago PD Cold Case Unit. I said that would be great. He didn't ask for any information over the phone. The next day, I was sitting in the room and told him the story of Charles Melquist. I gave them a list of the reasons that I believed him to be an excellent suspect and was actually considered a good suspect at the time. 
As in the Grimes case, Bonnie, like Barbara and Patricia Grimes, was a teen girl. Both Grimes and Scott's bodies were dumped nude just off the roadway. None of the clothing of any of the girls was ever found. The spot where the Grimes girls were found on German Church Road was only about two miles from where Bonnie Lee Scott's body was found. No cause of death was ever determined in either case. Suffocation was never ruled out in either case, and Melquist was known and accused by previous girlfriends of using some sort of sleeper-type hold on them, rendering them unconscious. One victim in particular who broke up with Melquist right after he rendered her unconscious had the unnerving experience of waking up one night and seeing Melquist standing over her bed. She screamed, her parents called the police, and Melquist was arrested and given community service. Loretta Grimes said that she remembers the same voice calling her with private info on her girls, as well as receiving a second call from the same person after Bonnie's unidentified body was found. Three puncture wounds in the shape of a triangle pattern were documented on Patricia Grimes' chest, and a long-handled three-pronged garden fork was found in the trunk of Melquist's car. Paul Hletko, the state welfare psychologist who examined Melquist, stated that the personality of Charles Melquist would match the psychology of the person responsible for the Grimes murders. He also stated that Melquist had a fantasy of throwing naked women into whirling blades the size of airplane propellers that would cut them to pieces. This would correspond to Melquist's desire to mutilate the bodies of women after death, as in Scott, and possibly in the case of Patricia's post-mortem wounds. Melquist's Little Black Book contained the names of neighbors of the Grimes girl, Sharon Bloomberg and Diane Prunty. Sharon and Diane mentioned that they had also frequented the Candyland ice cream shop where the Grimes kids hung out, but denied knowing the girls. After I finished, the Chicago detectives told me they had heard the name Melquist, and he was as good as a suspect as any of the others, but that he was dead. I told them to double-check because I believed he was alive and living in Naperville. He checked one of their databases and said, well, I'll be damned, he is alive. I told him that I didn't know what his mental or physical state was, but by judging by how quickly he confessed to the Scott killing, it might work just to show up with badges out of the blue and ask him questions about the Grimes case. They said that it might work, but they would rather have a search warrant in hand for his DNA before they spoke to him because they believed that based on the type of evidence that was still supposedly in storage, that there may be able to be some extractable, viable suspect DNA. They said that it would take a bit of work to get a judge to sign a warrant on a case that was over 50 years old, but it would be worth a shot. I told them that I didn't think that there was actually that much evidence that was taken in the case. They couldn't let me see it, but they showed me a stack of papers that were about a half inch thick, and they said it was an evidence inventory list. They said there are a couple of items on the list that might still contain viable DNA, but they couldn't get the Cook County Sheriff's Department to respond to any of their requests to test the evidence. I gave them a puzzled look and asked, aren't they in the same building? Can't you just walk down the hall and ask somebody? They looked at me and said it doesn't work that way. They also told me that the Sheriff's Department wanted nothing to do with our meeting that morning either. They said that they would work on getting a search warrant, thanked me for coming in, and said that they would keep me informed on the progress. I told them that if I learned anything else on my end, I would let them know. Unfortunately, less than a month after our conversation, Charles Leroy Milquist died on June 26, 2010, and was cremated. While DNA from Milquist was now impossible, 
they would have to rely on DNA from a blood relative if the opportunity ever presented itself. I knew at this point the only way this case was ever going to be closed was through the help of the public. I knew people were still alive who had information that might be able to help bring closure to the family. I decided that social media would be a great tool, so on October 28, 2011, I started the Facebook group Help Solve Chicago's Grime Sisters Murders. It's a private group and you have to request to join. Cindy Patterson Malinowski and Pat Short, the two administrators for the group, have been at it since the group's creation, and their knowledge and research abilities rival some of the best detectives I've seen. The group started slowly, but now has close to 2,000 members, which include family, friends, neighbors, and classmates of the girls, as well as law enforcement investigators past and present. It really wasn't until the January 22, 2012 edition of the Chicago Tribune came out that things really started to heat up. I'd been exchanging emails for about two years with Tribune columnist Stefan Benzkofer. He is quite the history buff, as am I, and he was writing a monthly full-page column entitled Chicago Flashback. In the column, Stefan would choose a major Chicago historical topic that occurred in that month and write a story as well as pull photographs from the Tribune archives to accompany the story. He emailed me about his January 2012 column and asked if I had any suggestions. I told him that the Grime sisters' bodies were discovered on January 22, 1957, and he thought that would be a great idea. The article was published with a tagline at the end thanking me for the suggestion and including my email address. I was never expecting what information would come forward and continue to come forward to this day. And that is pretty much uh, the story of Charles Milquist in a nutshell. Um, there's obviously a lot more um, to the story, and we found out, find out more and more each day uh, through the work of people on, on the Help Solve Chicago Grime Sisters website and people that reach out to us uh, all the time with new information. Um, but one of the links uh, of, of all the... Uh, I guess you could call them links to uh, from Melquist to the Grime Sisters murder. The one that sticks out the most for me uh, is the phone calls. So, uh, as you heard in the story, the you know there were two phone calls made to Loretta Grimes. Um, the first phone call was, I believe, in May, and um, that was when uh, the girls' bodies had already been found. And 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 rest, you know, Loretta received a lot of nasty phone calls and nasty pieces of mail. And, and while she did get a lot of support, there were also a lot of sickos out there that would, um, you know, say horrible things about the girls and blame Loretta for letting them be out late. And, you know, you name it, um, horrible, horrible phone calls. Um, but one of the calls stuck out, uh, stuck out in her head, um, of all the phone calls. And that was the one, uh, that was made in May of 1957. And that's when the, the person calling had said, I know something about your girls that nobody else knows. And that, um, you know, the little one has crossed toes. And of course the little one to the person who did it, unless he was really familiar with the girls, uh, the smaller of the girls was Barbara. And Barbara did, in fact, um, have crossed toes or crossed her toes when she was nervous. And that was information that was not put out uh, to the press or by Loretta. And, and even wasn't known by a lot of family members, um, actually. So it was pretty private information, which either leads me to believe that the person knew them very well or um, had just noticed uh, this thing about Barbara. Um, 
but and and then of course he, he she said that he laughed and then hung up the phone and then um right after it hit the newspaper that a um an unidentified body had been found at 95th and Lagrange Road and and was eventually identified as Bonnie Lee Scott um she received another phone call and she she said 100% was the same person um same voice same tone of voice and also the same laugh uh, before the person hung up the phone and to me it it says volumes if if this person uh, if this was their MO and and they kind of um you know really got something out of of um thinking they got away with something or thinking they're smarter than the police or 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 whatnot um for the person to be scouring the papers looking for something and then and then suddenly when Bonnie Lee Scott's body turns up and the police thinks it uh think it's somebody else uh, the first thing this person thinks about is calling Loretta Grimes and saying, I've got away with another one. Um, so it just tells me that whoever is, was responsible for Bonnie Lee Scott's murder um, also made that same phone call in May of 57. So to me, that's one of the most damning pieces of evidence that points to Charles Melquist. Um, now, th- there were a couple things that bothered me, though. I mean, it... it uh, as an investigator, I would I I kept saying, okay, you've got this Charles Melquist guy. He lives in Villa Park. Uh, his victim was Bonnie Lee Scott, who lives in Addison. What the heck is he doing in McKinley Park? So that always bothered me. You know, there needed to be some kind of link. Why would Melquist go way out of his way? There were plenty of, uh, I'm sure, plenty of uh, uh, victims or 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 potential victims uh, between Villa Park and um, McKinley Park in Chicago. Um, a little bit of a drive. Um, so I, I, I was always looking for, before I could really consider him a, 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 you know, any better suspect than anybody else. Um, I, I always felt like I needed to find a link between Melquist and McKinley Park. Now it is true that when they, when they did the search warrant on his house, they did find a little black book of his, uh, with names of two girls who lived close to the Grimes sisters. So, um, that's somewhat of a link. Uh, of course they said there were probably 50 to a hundred girls in this book. So it could just be the, the luck of the draw. Uh, but then I was contacted by a woman named Margie Novak and Margie Novak contacted me and said that, um, she had a boyfriend by the name of Jim Pasiak and, um, Jim was part of a club. And this is a story that, that she told me, but then I had an opportunity to talk to Jim. Um, I actually visited Margie in her home and, um, and she made a phone call to her boyfriend, Jim, who, who was in Michigan at the time. And, uh, he's the one who actually told me the story. And he said that, you know, when he was younger and it was, he's a contemporary of the Grimes girls. Um, he lived in McKinley park and he was part of a club of boys. He called it a club, not really a gang, but more of a club, uh, who hung out around the area of 38th and wood. Um, he said he hung out with, um, with a guy named Bob Moran, who was part of the club and a number of other, um, I'm going to say kids because, uh, generally he said they were between the ages of like 14 and 16. Um, and said that, you know, they'd get together in this club and, and whatnot. And then, the, uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Bob, Bob Moran, uh, had introduced a guy named Chuck, um, I know there's a lot of Chucks out there, um, but a guy named Chuck who was a little older than the boys, and, and of course Melquist would have been about 19 at the time, uh, a little older than the boys, and for some reason he wanted to hang out with them. Now, according to Jim, um, 
the uh, the uh, Bob had met him at a carnival, and uh, and of course we know now that 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 was one of Charles Melquist or Chuck Melquist's uh, favorite hunting uh, locations, at least during the summer when when there were carnivals. Um, this is where he let, met Bonnie Lee Scott and a, and a number of his uh, quote unquote girlfriends. Um, that Chuck, uh, for some reason, liked to hang out with the with the young kids. Uh, they thought he might be a little bit weird because why would a nineteen year old who had his own car want to hang w- out with a bunch of you know younger teenage boys? Uh, but he would take him to movie theaters, buy him beer, uh, buy him tickets to the movies. But he said that he also would show off his black forty nine Mercury with a split windshield. And that we'll figure in later. Keep that in mind because that that car will turn up over and over again when we uh, continue in further episodes of the Grime Sisters. But uh, she said uh, he said that that he would you know take them on rides through the forest preserves. He would you know kind of show off and and do spinouts in the gravel and and actually take them along German Church Road and some of the other back roads in the forest preserves. Um, and then one day he said they they were. Um, at the People's Movie Theater on Ashland. It's not there anymore. Uh, but he said they went to the People's Theater on, on Ashland. And a couple policemen came in and they arrested Chuck. Um, and they found out later it was because he had fondled a young girl in the movie theater. Um, and uh, they asked, how are we going to get home? And the police said, well, I guess you walk. And uh, so they ended up walking home. And, um, and then, you know, Chuck showed up again. And, um, only this time he, he said he, he had to check in every so often at the police department. So I don't know if that means he was on some sort of probation or, you know, who knows, he, he could have been working as an informant for the police, but they said that sometimes they'd go on these rides and he'd be somewhere in the area of, he said it was in one of the area of the suburbs of, uh, it was either Palos Park or Palos Hills. He couldn't remember. And he would have to check in. And then he, they remembered that he took them to a judge's house along a gravel road and specifically spun his wheels to kick gravel into the judge's windows. Um, so he wasn't real, a real big fan of, of I guess, what, whatever particular judge. I'm assuming the judge in, in the case that he may have found himself in for fondling this young girl at the movie theater. Um, but anyway, they said after the Grimes case, after the Grimes girls disappeared, he never came back. They never saw him again. Uh, but they remember as kids, they remembered that the same guy was charged with a similar crime about a year after the Grimes girls and went to prison. Um, so, I mean, in police work, we used to call that a clue. So I don't know how many, uh, Chucks, uh, murdered, uh, young girls a year after the Grimes case and then went to prison, uh, in the Chicago area. I, I don't think there are many. Um, so this, this to me was, was, was kind of, um, one of the major links that I was looking for. Now, interestingly, uh, and we'll we'll talk more about this in later episodes. But in, interestingly, as we were looking into Melquist's trial uh, for Bonnie Lee Scott, um, he was represented by an attorney named Robert McDonald. And Robert McDonald was a former Cook County prosecutor who was also an attorney for the mob. Um, now, as far as I know, Charles Melquist's parents didn't have any mob connections. Um, 
and this was no just random mob mob attorney. He was the the personal attorney for Sam Giancana, and it also represented uh, Sam DiStefano. Um, so he was pretty high up there as far as uh, on the totem pole of um, mob attorneys go. Now, what his interest in Charles Melquist was, I have no idea. Um, so that was, that's always been kind of in the back of my head too. In fact, Robert McDonald was so tied in with, uh, Sam Giancana, he eventually married Sam's daughter, Antoinette Giancana, who later wrote the book Mafia Princess in 1984. So, um, yeah, there's lots to talk about with Charles Milquist and, and there's much more as we delve further into it along with, and we're also going to touch on other, uh, possible suspects as well. I don't want to put all our eggs in one basket and just kind of come out and say that, Hey, Charles Mulquist is the one who did it because that's just my opinion. Um, I'm hoping that, um, I mean, it, it, it helps the more, uh, theories you have out there and then you can kind of weed through them and, and kind of settle on, uh, the most likely. But anyway, he was always one of my, um, top suspects. Um, but I don't believe he acted alone. I think it'd be very difficult, um, especially knowing what uh, the personalities of the girls that uh, one person could do what he did and and not leave any real marks on the bodies. Um, the, uh, you know, kill two, two girls that, you know, knew how to take care of themselves. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I don't think he acted alone. I don't know if he had an accomplice, uh, whether they were willing or you know, witting or unwitting. Um, uh, but I, I've always felt that there was more than one person involved. And now what I'd like to do is, um, I had the opportunity to sit down with Sandy Bauer. Uh, this was back in 2018 and, uh, Sandy Bauer, um, uh, was the next door neighbor and very close friend of Petey uh, as they were growing up. And I had a chance to sit down with her and kind of get um, her view of things. And so um, the interview is actually probably a little over an hour long, um, but I took about 20 minutes of it. Um, uh, and I'd, I'd really like you to listen to it here. And, um, and after it's through, uh, I have a couple thoughts on it as well. Well, thank you, Sandy, for doing this and okay. sitting down and talking to me. Um, what I wanted to do is kind of get, um, well, first of all, let's, let's talk about, before we get into all the nitty gritty, I kind of wanted to talk about, um, let's say the neighborhood, you know, we'll start more general and kind of get more specific. So growing, what was it like growing up in that neighborhood? It was good. It was, it was good. It was a lot of fun. The park was a lot of fun. I mean, as kids, you would go there and spend the day. We'd go ice skating, and it's like come home like 11 o'clock. If you didn't have school the next day, naturally. And uh, it was fun. It'd be outside in the summer playing hopscotch or ball or something until it's time to go in. Uh, McKinley Park neighborhood was a friendly neighborhood. It was uh, different religions in the neighborhood. Uh, people would sit out on their front porch, and you'd walk by, and naturally you'd say, Hello, Mr. and Mrs. You never call anybody by their first name. <laughs> uh, but it was a friendly neighborhood. It was nothing 
vicious or anything about it. And I think that's why everyone got shocked when they heard about the Grimes sisters. Like, how did people regard the police? Were they, you know, were they trustworthy, weren't they? I mean, how does that work? some. Yeah. <laughs> Not in the neighborhood, you know. Like, nowadays you'll see squad cars, but then times have changed where you need the squad cars. But I never saw an officer of the law until this happened. Really? What did you move in here? Like, were you born there? In yes, the I was born... On uh, 36, 38, Damon. And was there until I got married. So did the Grimes live there the whole time? Do you remember? As far as I know, okay. Petey was my best friend. And we got along. Barb was a little spitfire. Uh, not mean or nothing like that. But um, she was more outgoing than Petey. Well, she was older, too, so. So let's, uh, what could you describe, I mean, I, I know you gave a kind of quick description of Barbara. You were closer to Petey. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like your description of Petey. Like, if you were going to describe Petey as someone who didn't know her, like me, I didn't know her. So what, how would you describe her? Happy, fun, fun. Um, good, basically a good kid. And then Barbara, were they were they close? Barbara yeah, and Barbara and Petey were close, but I think Barbara was a little jealous of Petey because she had more friends. Really, Petey had more friends. Not not many, but but uh, Barbara, she never hurt anybody. I mean, she had temper, you know. And one time, uh, she encountered with me, and she scratched me right over here, and I had a scar there for the longest time. Why? Because Petey let me hold her down. Let you hold Barbara's down? No, Petey's down. Petey handed me her doll she got for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And Barbara got mad. And she had a bad day. And how how old were they then? It was right before, right after Christmas. Really? Okay, so we're talking close to when all this happened. Your family, how many people were in your family? Six, Six of us all together. Mom and Dad. And three older brothers and myself. Okay. And who are your older brothers? Frank, Ralph, and Tom. Okay. Now, how would they, now the boys did they get along like like Joey and Jimmy and your brothers? Oh no, 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 no. Okay. okay. So the boys didn't have a close relationship. No. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then where did when did you first meet? Did you go? To, who did you go to school with? Like for the most part, Jimmy. Jimmy, okay. Because right. we're the same age. He's a little bit older than I am, but not much. So um, what, what do you think, when, you, when, when did you first, like, start hanging? Obviously, you were pretty close, but when did you first, as far as you can remember, first start becoming close with the grandson? Oh, gosh, I really don't remember. I just remember them being there all the time and playing with Petey, and I'd be at her house, or she'd be at our house, or... You know, my mom was like the Kool-Aid mom. (laughs) So, uh, and then it was a matter when my mom went back to work. She worked for the government during the day. And my father was an electrician who worked at night. So then when he slept, naturally, the kids couldn't come into the house. But um, no, I remember, I don't remember anyone else living there. And did you remember the, 
Um, Mr. Burns? Joe no. Burns? Right. I've seen him once. Okay. And my Teresa said that's more than what she's seen. Oh, really? Okay. Do you, do you remember anything about boys? Did boys figure into the picture at all? Obviously, Pete's a little young, but if Barbara and Peter were close, do you remember anything about boys? No. No, not a thing. Okay. So, so if you were to say neither one of them had boyfriends? or You're, That's absolutely correct. Barbara and Petey did not have boyfriends, not to my knowledge, and I think Mrs. Grimes would have really, really had a fit. Could you, in, your, in, the, in the best way you can, talk about kind of just leading you through the whole thing from, like, Early in the morning, whatever you can remember, but from the like the morning to December twenty eighth, the day that they went missing, or the day they went to the show. So that morning, just kind of give me a play by play as best you can about what you did and when you first hooked up with them and what you know who was home and you know just kind of what you remember the day they went to the show. Well, we were on Christmas vacation. I remember that, and uh, went over to the house in the morning, like every day. And we were just sitting there watching TV. And so Petey says, oh, we're going to go to the show to see Elvis Presley. Can you come with us? And I says, oh, I don't know. And she says, well, you have to go home and ask. I says, yeah, yeah. So time went on a little bit. And she says, okay, you're going to go home and ask? And I says, yeah. So when I went out the back porch, Joey was out there. Jimmy, I think, was in his bedroom. And this guy was in the house. What do you mean the guy was in the house? On the back porch. Tall guy. Um, he had a bandana on his head. And with why I looked at him is because I've never seen a man with a ba- or a boy or whatever mm-hmm. with a bandana on his head. And it was across his forehead. Now, nowadays you see it, but I never saw it then. And so you kind of got a little scared because Joey was there. And I went out the back. And I went in our house and I asked my dad, I says, can I go to the show with PD and Barbara? He goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you want you to go to the show? Because he was our chief cook at night. Because my mom worked days and my dad worked nights. And so he would get up and cook dinners. And he says, I'm making dinner. You're not going nowhere. I says, okay. Because you never sass back or nothing in those days. Not like now. Um, so I went and I told Petey and Barbara. And then I remember after dinner, standing on the porch, our front porch, and waving goodbye to them as they walked down Day Minute to get the bus. So that that's not a good memory to have. No, no, not at all. I guess going back, so your last memory of them was them leaving, and you waved to them. Correct? Yeah, I was standing in our front porch. Okay. My front, my parents, and they walked out the front door and. Right. And you looked. What was your address at the time? Thirty-six, thirty-eight. So you were. Right next door. Just south of them? Yes. Okay. And so they did plan on taking the bus then, as far as you know? As far as I know. But I'm going to show you some photos real quick. I know you mentioned, you said there was some guy that, no, this guy that was in the house, 
He was on the porch. He was on the porch. Okay. And so who was home at the time when you saw this person? Not sure I remember. I know Mrs. Grimes worked, but where she worked, I don't remember. Okay. Uh, I remember when she'd come home from work, Barbara and Petey and Joey and Jimmy were all excited because Mom's home. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember where she worked. Okay. And you haven't seen this guy in the neighborhood before? That, no. Correct. Okay. And there was a car in the alley, and I've never seen the car either. Do so. you remember what it, kind of what it looked like? What? Black. Oh, <laughs> there we go. Um, I don't remember. Big, small. All the cars were big then. Sure. I don't remember. Anything about the windshield? Windshield? I'm just asking. Some of them had split windshields, some of them had solid windshields. Oh. Does that person look familiar? Mm Mm-hmm. What what is that person? Why is that person familiar? Because... Yeah. That's the guy that was in the back. On the porch. This guy? Mm-hmm. He was in the house? No, he was on the porch. He was on the back porch. And that was the day that they went to the show? Yeah. And he was with? He was talking with Joey. Joey. Okay. I thought it was a friend of Joey's. Right. But you hadn't seen him before? Never seen him before. Never saw him again. Does that, is this pretty representative of the age? I mean, obviously they dressed him up and stuff and he's in a suit. The reason I ask is that this guy was actually convicted of murdering another girl, like a year after the Grimes case. Well, the age, as far as the age, when you're 11, <laughs> everybody's old. Everybody looks old, right. right. So you're pretty sure that the, you're sure this is the guy as far as your memory serves? Yeah. Um, he was wearing jeans and a black coat. Coat. Jacket of some sort. What color the thing was on his head, I don't know. Don't remember. But it was like, I never see anything like that. Now you see motorcycle riders with it. Right. And how close were you to him? Like when you were leaving, did you? I had to go right past to get out the back door. Did he say anything to you? No. No. Is it shocking to think that that the guy that you saw in the house at the day they went to the show was actually convicted of murdering a girl. It makes my stomach turn. If you want to know the truth, it's... How could... You know, I don't understand why people murder each other. And, but I don't know if he murdered the Grimes sisters. Sure. That's all I know is he was on the back porch of the house. This is just another photo of looking down. I'm positive the same guy. Is he in jail? So he was convicted of killing Bonnie Lee Scott mm-hmm. in, well, killed her in September. Uh, the trial went on for a long time. He was convicted for killing her. And in much the same situation as the Grimes mm-hmm. situation, same location roughly, that, that the girls were left. Um, same situation where they couldn't decide, you know, they couldn't figure out a cause of death, kind of similar to the Grimes girls. No. Um, so it was, there were a lot of similarities, but the thing that surprised me the most was that uh, for killing a 15-year-old girl, 
you served eight years. So if I were to be reward to type to stay out and party. And oh, no. No. Mm-mm. Never. They were home buddies. And so, what what was the talk? Was there any talk in the neighborhood? I mean, were there any theories or what was going I, on for that? I mean, they're almost no gone idea. a month before they figured out that they weren't living anymore. So they were missing for close to, I want to say, like 24, 25 days. So, was there anything, any talk within your family? Like, no. I'm sure not, so nobody talked about it? Not, not that I remember. Or, what about at school? When you went back to school? Well, okay. You were at St. Morris at the time, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, no, I don't remember anyone talking about it. Don't remember praying for him or anything. I, I think everyone thought, oh, they'll be back. When is the first time you remember hearing that the girls didn't come home? Hmm. The next morning. When my father woke me up, and there were men in blue in the living room. And they said, have I seen Petey and Barbara? And I said, no. And they left. That was it? That was it. So, you mean, were were these guys in uniform? Yeah. Okay. So, these were Chicago? Yes. Chicago police. With the double brass buttons down. Okay. And so, so take so take me back through that. So you were sleeping, and then what happened? My dad woke me up. Okay. And I walked out from my room into the dining room, and these I think there were three of them standing there. And they asked me if I seen Petey and Barbara Grimes, and I said no. They left. That was it. And then what were you thinking at that point? Why? Oh, half asleep too. Sure, sure. And. Then my mom came and she says that they didn't come home. So I didn't know what to think. So was that the only time the police ever came? Was that first day they didn't come back to you? Right. The only time I ever seen, except when the detectives <clears throat> moved into Mrs. Grimes' house, they would take shifts in Mrs. Grimes' house. And... um I think the Chicago police put a phone in Mrs. Grimes' place then. Okay. Because I heard that she was getting phone calls from somebody who I, I don't know. And there was one um, detective, his name was Teller. I guess I became friends with him. Okay. So did you talk? I mean, yeah. what kind of guy did he seem like? like when, he seemed time? okay. He was heavy set and he had my favorite candy all the time, licorice, and now you think about it and never take candy. <laughs> Shortly after the Grimes, I ended up in the hospital with rheumatic fever, and um, my dog passed, and Teller gave me a puppy, Italian Greyhound, a little whippet. I think the dog was on drugs, just like that. Because <laughs> I'm not. My mother would change the bed linen, and the dog would pee on the pillows. Um, cute little dog. Uh, I remember when I got home from the hospital, the detectives were still there, and it was summer, and we didn't have air conditioning, and my bedroom window was open, and right from my bedroom window, you could see into Grimes's dining room. And they would gamble there. 
And poor Mrs. Grimes was always losing. <laughs> How do you know Mrs. Grimes wasn't winning? <laughs> so what do you do you remember when it went from missing persons to a murder investigation. Like, how did no. you find out the girls were actually deceased? My mom and dad told me that they found Judy and Barbara, and they were dead. That was about it. In fact, about three years ago, my husband finally, so I could get closure, I went to the cemetery looking for their grave, and it's like I couldn't find it. So he went with me, and they, the lady at the cemetery, she, we finally found it. And then he took me to German Church Road, which is now Burr Ridge, and so I could have closure. Sure. So talk us through, like, um, after you found out, and after word got out, whether it's in the paper or in school or whatever, um, was there a noticeable difference within the neighborhood? Well, like I said, I was in the hospital for a while, but when I came home, there was no contact with a lot of kids because kids didn't go out. Parents were afraid for them, and, and I was six months in the hospital and six months in bed rest, and so it was horrid. Did you ever to talk to anyone in the Grand same way after the girls were missing? Oh, Mrs. Grimes, I would go there, would you? yeah, and sit with her. And in your opinion, do you think that Barbara and Patricia would be the type to get into a car with someone they don't know? Someone they don't know? Never, never. No, Barbara and Patricia Grimes would never get into a stranger's car, ever. In the coroner's inquest, they alluded. They kept asking Mrs. Grimes the same, the same question over and over again. Mm -hmm. Do you know of any local groups of boys that may have had bad intentions or, or, or what they called the neighborhood toughs is what they called them? The like Winchester Gang. The Winchester Gang? Yeah. Not the, what, what is the Winchester Gang? I've never heard of the Winchester Gang. Well, they hung out on Winchester. Okay. And they would just harass kids in the neighborhood. And my two brothers would open their big mouths, and they put a lot of miles on their feet running from them. Really? Yeah. If they ever caught them, I, they never did, but I don't know what they would have done if they did catch them. Because I've heard of a couple different groups, obviously, in the neighborhood. It was very clicky, I guess, depending on what, what neighborhood you were part of. I've heard 38th and Wood. I've heard 38 and Winchester. I've heard That's the Winchester game. Okay. Uh, but... I never heard of any other gangs. That was the dominant one. Okay. So as far as the investigation goes, what, what, what's your opinion as far as how, from what you saw? Nobody, none of the police department ever interviewed me, asked me a question, except did I know where the girls were? I mean, even at the, um, where they found the girls, there were the cops all over the place making footprints and all. It's like, why? Uh, my brothers belonged to a hot rod club. It was called the Lancers. That's all they did was build cars and work on cars in my dad's garage. And my mom would serve lunch every Saturday and breakfast every Saturday. And they had a clubhouse. And they, the cops went in there and ripped it up looking for bodies. At your 
the Lancers Clubhouse, or yes. whatever you want to call it. Their, right. Their, their hot rod club. Mm-hmm. Where was the clubhouse at? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, but it was uncalled for. They never talked to any of the guys. They just went in there and ripped up the floors and everything else. But why? Yes, they never did get justice. I mean, Mrs. Grimes died not knowing. I'm sure now she knows who did it. But Teresa and Jimmy, they'll never know. Was there any talk as you were growing up about anything, any theories that people had? If you were hanging out with people, they said, oh, I know so-and-so was probably the person who did it. Or nothing, Mm -hmm. nothing at all. Let's go back to that, I guess, from the funeral. What do you remember that day going to the funeral? Not much. Uh, yeah, I was a pallbearer. I walked alongside the casket. In fact, Mrs. Grimes gave me a, a friendship ring. Really? From that Brighton jewelry donated. And I also have a bottle of cologne up there that Petey gave me. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, after 61 years, I hope that somebody comes forward and admits to what has happened, or if they know something, to please tell the authorities. I think our police department is better now than it was. Now, I know it's it's kind of hard uh, when you're listening to an interview to really, um, it was actually a, a video, uh, we had videotaped it, and uh, so this obviously was just the audio from that, but, um, and it's hard to tell what, what we're doing a lot of times um, in, the, in just the audio, uh, but it was really crazy if you could have seen the look on my face when Sandy Bauer picked out a picture of Charles Milquist. Um, we had been going through a... a, a a, a binder of, of photographs that I had collected over the years. Uh, many of them were, were old photos from the Chicago Sun-Times, uh, original photos that they were selling along with the negatives. And so I had, I had seen a bunch of these online and had purchased a few of them. And, uh, and there were other photos in there as well. But it was, it was, you know, we were just going through. Some of them weren't even dealing with the Grimes case. They were dealing with the Schusler-Peterson case and Judith May Anderson, um, all, you know, child murders that were going on, uh, going on around the same time. And uh, Sandy's the one that stopped me and said, who's this initially? And I said, oh, that's, that's Charles Melquist. He was, you know, convicted of, of murdering a, a girl uh, about a year after the, the Grimes case. And, and she said, he, he was in the house. Um, he was, you know, he was, this guy was in the house. And I said, what do you mean he was in the house? And she said, well, he was, he was on the back porch. And I said, I, I, how do you know that? And she said, I was there. I saw him. It was the day the girls went to the movie theater. And I said, are you sure? And she said, no, I'm, I'm positive. You know, I, I'll never forget his face. And uh, I said, well, why, do you, why, why would you not forget his face? And she said, well, because when I walked past him, he was wearing a bandana. And I had never seen him before in the neighborhood. And he was talking to Joey Grimes um, on the back porch. And, um, and he was tall. And she said, I, she goes, he, he just, I looked right at him. And I'd never seen a guy wear a bandana before. And so I guess she was a little taken aback by that, but said, no, it's definitely the same guy. 
And I said, well, are, are you sure as in like, if you went to like, would you retell that story to the Cook County Sheriff's Office? And she said, absolutely. You know, I'm, she was that sure. So, you know, you, you can take it for what it is. I've, I've heard simple say, how, how could she recognize some guy, you know, 60 years after the fact? Um, and that does pose a, a problem with, with identification. Um, I've heard all sorts of, of, of different um, theories regarding that. Some people may think that maybe she's covering up for someone. Maybe she just feels like she wants to be helpful. But she was the one that stopped me. I didn't say, hey, look at this guy, Charles Melquist. Does he look familiar? So, um, you know, it's not an official lineup, and it is 60 years later, so you can take it for what it is. But, um, again, it was just another another um, thing that tended to point me toward uh, Charles Melquist. She does mention Sheldon Teller, and Sheldon Teller is a pretty big player in this whole thing. He was... Um, he was actually a, a star narcotics detective uh, for the Chicago police, made a lot of arrests. I always thought it was a little weird um, that they would make a narcotics detective in charge of a homicide investigation. And this would be for the Chicago PD, not not the Cook County Sheriff's Office. Uh, Teller worked for the CPD. And, uh, you know, yeah, I, I did think it was a little odd. And I think Sandy, after thinking about it for a while, thought it might have been a little odd that, you know, he always had her favorite candy and gave her a dog when he found out that her dog died. And maybe he was just, you know, a friendly guy. I don't know. But, um, but you know, it, it kind of seems weird. But anyway, Diane Prunty. So Diane Prunty and Sharon Bloomberg figure into uh, on the Melquist case, cases, they were two of the names uh, and they were the close neighbors of the Grimes girls in Melquist's Little Black Book. So I had the opportunity to talk to Diane Prunty, who obviously is married since then, and her name has changed. Um, and she kind of told me, that, you know, because I was kind of curious, you know, if she, you know, how did Melquist get your phone number? And so um, I knew people that knew her and they put us in touch and, and she said pretty much she has no idea um, how Melquist would have gotten her phone number. Supposedly they had heard that he had found them written on, on a back of a bus seat or something. Um, she did remember that um, shortly before the Grimes girls disappeared, um, she did get uh, a strange phone call. Her mom was the one that picked up the phone and it was an older sounding guy looking for Diane and, um, and her mom told her to go away because Diane didn't have any boyfriends or whatnot. And she was too young to have boyfriends. And, and, uh, so whether or not that was, uh, you know, Melquist, who knows, but, uh, but Diane Prunty said that, uh, Sheldon Teller had, had Melquist little black book. In fact, she said that he was one of the first ones through the door when they did the search warrant on Melquist's house in Villa park. And, uh, he had the little black book. Now, um, I know it was not a Chicago, uh, the Milquist was not a Chicago investigation. Um, I'm not sure if he, you know, came across it and, and requested it and signed it out, or if he just took it saying, hey, I could use this for our investigation. I'm not sure how he came across um, or whether or not he placed the book back in, in, in evidence or not. Um, but he, he did talk to Diane Prunty and Diane Prunty and, and I'm assuming Sharon, uh, he was supposedly talking to all the girls that were that were in Melquist's little black book, and uh, Diane had told me that um, Sheldon Teller had actually started dating her mother. So after Sheldon Teller had come to the house and and to interview her and her mother, um, they started dating. Of course, Sheldon Teller was married at the time, which 
probably wasn't really cool. Um, but yeah, I thought that was kind of odd. And then I said, well, well, you know, I was always curious as to why the Chicago PD didn't question uh, or Cook County question Melquist on any of the grime stuff since they pretty much had him in custody for, I think, about three days before his attorney uh, came into the picture. Um, and she said, you know, they, her mother did ask Teller that question. He said he was, they were told not to. Uh, now, now what that means, um, they were told not to by Malquist's attorney, which would make sense, or were they not told, told not to talk to him by somebody else? Uh, but she didn't know exactly what that meant. She just remembers hearing his response to her mother's question. Um, but the interesting thing is that both Melquist and Sheldon Teller had a direct link to Sam Giancana. Um, of course, we know Melquist was represented by his attorney. Um, but Sheldon Teller had been brought up on uh, narcotics charges uh, two different times um, in federal court. Uh, so although he was a narcotics detective, uh, he was also uh, selling drugs and facilitating the sale of drugs for Sam Giancana. Um, the first time he was brought up on charges was in 1960, uh, federal narcotics conspiracy charges. Uh, he and his partners, Miles Cooperman and Richard Austin, uh, were on trial. And, uh, and, and this is some weird stuff, but um, they were on, on trial for basically selling drugs to an undercover uh, federal, uh, federal informant. And, um, and so they were on trial as part of a narcotics conspiracy. And uh, as the jury was, de- the case was pretty much over, the jury was deliberating. And uh, federal district judge Joseph Sam Perry was the judge in charge of the trial. And uh, as the jury went out uh, to deliberate, the judge threw out the case against all of the police officers, although the other defendants were, were still charged. So um, he didn't give any reason other than the fact he thought the witnesses weren't uh, reliable. And, uh, and the jury foreman was so upset that he actually wrote a letter uh, to the U.S. attorney, so, which was uh, you know, a pretty big deal. Um, but anyway, so, so they, were, they were, I guess you could say, exonerated. They weren't charged. Uh, they were free to go. And uh, they were suspended while the trial was going on. But immediately after being reinstated on the Chicago PD, they went directly back to the Grimes case. Um, and this was in 1961, I believe. Now, if that wasn't enough, he was brought up on narcotic charges again in 1966. Uh, this time he was convicted and sentenced by federal district judge James B. Parsons uh, to 18 years in prison. So I'm not sure at this point whether he ever got out of prison or whether he died in prison or whether he appealed and was released. I'm not really sure. I haven't gotten that far into Sheldon Teller. Um, but the assistant U.S. attorney in charge of the prosecution was a D. Arthur Connolly, and he said that he was threatened by telephone during the trial by someone saying, we're going to beat your brains out, and found that the ignition in his car was tampered with while it was parked on Plymouth Court across the street from the courthouse. Uh, and he said that he had never been threatened before as uh, at any time before in his career as a U.S. attorney. So obviously... Teller, and at this point, um, his partner at the time was not uh, Cooperman or um, or Austin; it was somebody else. Um, so maybe Cooperman and Austin learned their lesson, and, and Teller hadn't. But in an interesting twist, I had, I had the opportunity to speak with uh, the stepdaughter of Sheldon Teller, who was a really nice woman, and she had told me that uh, she didn't believe 
that uh, Teller was involved in any of the narcotics trade, that, that, that Teller had mentioned to her that, um, that uh, he knew who the Grimes killer was. And for some reason, she thinks that he was uh, very possibly framed uh, in order to keep him quiet. Um, maybe I'll have her, I'll see if she wants to uh, come on the podcast. I'd really like to talk to her in a little more detail, if possible, um, about Sheldon Teller and what she remembers. But yeah, so so there was a, a, a link between both Melquist and Sheldon Teller to Sam Giancana. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to say that the mob had anything to do with, with the girl's disappearance or murder, um, but there were obviously people involved who had ties to organized crime. So you just wonder how that thing sort of affects the entire case. Um, another thing that, that Sandy mentioned that, that I thought was really interesting was and uh, in, in could be... Um, a possible lead is she had mentioned that her brothers were involved in a car club called the Lancers. Um, they were just guys who got together and souped up cars and kind of hung out. Uh, but she did say that the, the police tore up their clubhouse, uh, but she didn't know why. Um, so I, I don't, I mean, maybe the police went around to all the car clubs and started tearing places up or all the places where, where gangs of, People gathered for some reason. I'm not sure. Um, I'm hoping that you know some one of our listeners might know somebody uh, from the Lancers Car Club, or or if that sparks anyone's memory about a Lancers Car Club. She also mentioned something about the Winchester Gang, a gang of boys that hung out at 38 in Winchester. Um, I, like again, I don't know if this is a real gang or it's just a group of kids that terrorized other kids. Um, but if anyone out there knows anything about the 38 and Winchester gang or the Lancers car club, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, so you can always go on, you know, you can always just email us at murder and mixology at gmail.com. Obviously you can re- remain anonymous if you wanted to, and we're not going to share any of your information unless, unless we have your permission. So, but yeah, that was something that I thought could also figure into the whole story. Now, I know that Sandy said her brothers were part of a car club. Um, there was a story uh, that I had heard um, that a um, friend of Loretta's, who also uh, was a member of the St. Saint, um, uh, Morris Parish, um, said that she overheard one time at a confession. I don't know if she was outside the confessional or whether I've never been in a confessional, so I don't know. Um, the, the acoustics. Um, but she said she overheard, uh, a young man, uh, she described as a teenage boy, uh, who had said something about being involved with the Grimes girls murders and it kind of caught her attention and she waited and, uh, and supposedly according to this woman or according to the person that told us the story, the woman, uh, followed, um, the boy home and, or at least assumed it was his home, but followed him. Uh, and supposedly he went into the bar's house. Now, whether it was a family member or a friend of the family or whatnot, we have no idea because a woman didn't recognize the person. Um, and I had heard at one point that, um, you know, one of the priests had said something like, you would be really surprised if you knew who the murderer was uh, as if the priest had, heard something in a confession, but couldn't say anything. So, um, I don't know, you know, if the story has any truth to it, um, or if it actually happened or if someone just had 
an axe to grind against against the Bowers. But I do know that uh, uh, Sandy was a really great person and, and, and had recently passed away, unfortunately. And um, but so if anyone knows anything about the Lancers Car Club or or um, uh, maybe knew Sheldon Teller or had any information about that, that would be uh, very interesting, I think. Um, and of course, if anyone was friends with uh, Jim Pasiak or Bob Moran, who hung out at the 38th and Wood Club, um, who were introduced to the mysterious Chuck. Now, I know Jim could not identify uh, their Chuck with, um, uh, when I had asked him, would he recognize a picture of Chuck, he said he probably wouldn't. Uh, but he did know what the car was, that it was a 49 Mercury with a split windshield. And again, like I said, that will definitely figure in as we go in a little deeper into the investigation and and uh, when we start tracking the whereabouts of the girls uh, after uh, the movie. So anyway, what I thought I would um, kind of throw out there too is I'm, I'm throwing out the idea of doing a Facebook Live event. I'm thinking about doing it on Thursday of this week. Um, I think a lot of people, when I mentioned it before, thought it might be a good idea just to have kind of a live question and answer um, with a group. So uh, a lot of people said they didn't have Zoom uh, but that they knew how to use Facebook Live. We might try Facebook Live one week and Zoom the next week. Um, or, you know, we'll see what works out. Uh, but I'm thinking about doing a Facebook Live thing probably on Thursday of this week. I'll work out the details and then put that out on the Murder and Mixology website uh, as it comes, uh, as it gets closer. So with that, uh, I want to thank you so much for listening. And I'm looking forward to putting together the next episode. And uh, uh, thank you for listening in on Murder in Mixology. Bottoms up. <laughs>